spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling like a heretic. Ooh, tell us why. right. A heresy (laughs) is any belief or theory that is strongly at variance with established beliefs or customs. And um, I think the role of an artist is often, you know, could be seen as a parallel to that statement because often we as an art community are outsiders we're sort of uh challenging the status quo challenging what's going on in society uh and i think it can often be quite an exhausting thing particularly in the moment in the state of the world everything that's going on sometimes we have a lot of steps forward but a lot of steps back mm. but anyway today's cha 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 it is yeah. yeah oh my god that's a nice way of putting it mm. um today's guest is a dear friend someone who i always feel very at home with and immediately had a kind of kinship with them when i first met them maybe 10 or 12 or so years ago I think it was right in the early stages of being in East London with Carl Friedman. And we used to hang out um, often through music connections because we had uh, musicians in common who were friends. And they are the most incredible human being, but also an amazing sculptor, which is kind of primarily what I guess they would be known for. But as, as well as that, they have a fascination with sound, with performance, with um, expressing themselves on the paper uh, and even painting. I saw an amazing Lister Basel show years and years and years ago with Jesse Darling, uh, the artist also with Arcadia Missa. And um, it was like a duo presentation really early on in the early days, which I loved. And is also part of Black Obsidian Sound System, who you... I think, selected for the Turner Prize, didn't That's you? That's right, the collective boss. Yeah, exactly. Yes, we had the collective Which will be re- really interesting to talk about as well and that other side to their life. But um, we are super proud. I think they're in London right now and I've been wanting to talk to this guest for years. Now feels the right, like the right time because they have a beautiful, stunning, epic uh, show which involves heresy perhaps as a theme within it. We can chat about that now at Arcadia Missa in London. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art... Phoebe, Phoebe Collins, Collins James. James. Hi, Phoebe. Hello. Wow, you really make it feel like a talk show. An art talk <laughs> show. I guess that's the, the point. It's a nighttime talk show. <laughs> <laughs> it's so wonderful to be here. Oh, how Thank are, you you. are you in London? I am in London, yeah. I'm in East London right now. You spent a long time in Brooklyn. You came back in 2019, but I didn't know if you still had a base in Brooklyn. Is that somewhere you go back and forth to? Do you know what? It's it's actually not. I definitely thought I'd be back and forth a bit more. I think partly the pandemic and partly enjoying being a bit more rooted and grounded and also being back living in the area that I grew up in um, has kept me a bit more stationary. So, yeah. What took you to New York in the first place? Everything, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Everything all at once. I definitely, I I was 
firstly, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to do a residency there um, in 2012. So that's when I first sort of began to make friends there and sort of understand what making art in that city could look like. And then otherwise, it was sort of just wanting to run away a little bit, kind of feeling like I hadn't really found, I guess, properly found a community that I wanted to make art with in London. It felt very fragmented. I had, you know, a bunch of close friends who were all kind of working with working with music or dance or, you know, making art in all sorts of ways. But it felt very fragmented across the city and it didn't really seem to link into like gallery spaces or I don't know, just like opportunities that kind of echoed and sort of mirrored the type of work I wanted to be making and the things I was thinking about and feeling like enlivened by. And so, yeah, given the opportunity to kind of run away a bit, I took it. Initially, just setting up a studio and working sort of odd jobs and then, yeah, ended up staying for quite a while. Do you think there's a big difference between the London art scene for emerging artists and the position you were in and New York for supporting emerging artists? I think at the time, yeah. I think there was... There were many... Because it's just so much bigger in so many different kinds of ways, not only the city, but just the scope of being in North America. um, It meant that there were just so many more of everything. So there were many black art communities... And they, you know, represented different politics, different ethics, different styles, different class positions, like loads of different sort of multiplicities happening. Um, And likewise with, yeah, with sort of galleries, there are like hundreds of small galleries, hundreds of medium sized galleries, hundreds of blue chip, you know, it's like, it's everything just gets multiplied. And I think in London, it, it can still feel like things really are much more small town and that's not a bad thing, but it also means that, you know, there's a different maybe nexus of power in London where you really feel like certain spaces really have quite a lot of authority over what does and doesn't get gatekeeped and shown and things like that. So... Yeah, in that sense, it felt like way more possibilities and scope. Do you feel like you've always been an artist? I read read this wonderful story about how you, as a child, made in your auntie's bed um, an orange juice pond that you then brought various animals in to play in. Um, I love this story. And (laughs) and you looking back said that this was a time or or you you felt like your your mum was going, you're an artist. There there wasn't sort of... um, it it was seen as childlike but not childish, as in it was supporting this sort of artistic uh, imagining that you created. I'm sure your auntie was less excited by it, but <laughs> yeah, my auntie was a lot less excited about it. My parents were mortified. Um, yes, I do. I think it was always something that I felt quite strongly, and I guess maybe also some of the differences between those of us who call ourselves artists. And those who don't or those who do it as a career and those who don't is just whatever else happens in your life that allows you to continue to deepen that intention. So 
Yes, I feel that absolutely, as well as acknowledging, I guess, that like, I think a lot of people have that, some of that, whatever I had in me. Um, yeah, we were talking about it recently, actually, because I, I have a new nephew and niece and my nephew's sort of a similar age difference between me and my sister. And when my sister came along two and a half years after me, I very quietly um, covered the whole bedroom and carpet in, uh, what is it, in like shampoo. And so, and we were laughing about it because we were like, because my nephew is currently adjusting to have his having his new uh, little sister around, and I was just like, there's there was real poetry to that, especially because <laughs> the more you try and wash it off, the more suds and bubbles yeah, exactly. happen. I was like, that I'm quite impressed at that. Don't let him near your bed. With I know these, these these quiet rebellions, but yeah, <laughs> basically that. That's amazing. So this show that you currently have up at Arcadia Mister that we're talking about, um, which is the title of it is called Bum Babylon, Bun, not Bum, Bun Babylon, a heretics anthology. And as Rob said in the in the uh, opening about heretics, this is a really important idea that you're bringing into this show. And I'd love to talk about that because people listening will be able to go and see this show. Where did the title come from? So often with my work, I'm thinking about the materials I'm working with, as well as different words or phrases or feelings or things that are going on around me socially. And I was deep in research thinking about cuneiform tablets, ancient sort of like Mesopotamia, thinking about what kind of Babylon actually was and thinking about where we are at in sort of this late stage like capitalist apocalypse and remembering that so many of the peaks and troughs that we experience have happened before you know there's this kind of a circularity that happens or this like this wave and tide that happens throughout history but specifically wanting to go back to that point because I was working with clay and thinking about clay as like an ancient material as well as a primordial material and wanting to weave all of these things in. The reasoning for thinking about Bum Babylon and often these things will just be kind of ping-ponging, free associating in my head as I'm sort of playing about with forms and maquettes and things. And I was thinking about how powerful that is, both as a phrase that's used in the sort of by people in the Caribbean and here, you know, in Patois and how that sort of like also come into like a wider, a wider use in, in people's language, especially in a city like London and actually what it means, you know, really thinking about what it means to say that, to say, to set, to set the metropolis on fire, to set sort of capitalism on fire thinking about a lot about like Caribbean consciousness and writers and philosophers and musicians who kind of have preached anti-capitalism and sort of like revolution and all these different kind of like new ways of being in the world and dealing with the violence that has come in the past and present. So all of these things were happening at the same time. And then I'm thinking about clay and thinking about the ways in which 
yeah, it, it, it kind of relates as this sort of like formative material. And the, the show itself, I, I heard it described as an anthology of like six kind of central characters. And um, there's the infidel, the dreamer, the guardian, the silo, the cipher and the preacher, um, which are kind of these figures in a way, aren't they? Through the sculptures, I guess. Because um, I guess each sculpture represents one of those uh, figures. Can you speak a bit about each one of those and, and how, how that exhibition came to be? I know that's going to be quite challenging. No, I think the easiest way for me to really describe it is it weirdly or or not, the, the work with clay really links to the work with sound. So I'm often thinking about how I work with sound in terms of collaging. Most of the work I do is using the, the music software Ableton. And so I'm like throwing things in, stuff that I've recorded live, maybe with musicians as well as like sound recordings from being in the street or in public spaces. And there's this kind of like taking from lots of different places and always interlinking with language. And so the sh with the show and those different figures, I was sort of thinking about which, which kind of icons or figures or characters um, could potentially be used to begin to describe this pushback, you know, of people who are maybe either speaking out or like complicating narratives a bit. And the infidel, as like an example, is a part of the exhibition is one of the sculptures that is kind of on a rolling base. It was formed by essentially a kind of like coiled vessel style um, way of making and then sort of begins to evolve into a maybe bird-like or strange kind of penguin-like creature. Um, and for those works, I was really thinking about the infidel as something that is potentially still spiritual and still has faith, but that is questioning and that is then pushed, you know, pushed out of something that is um I don't I guess like a more organized structure and likewise with the preacher you know things that could kind of be on either side of a politics but that are ultimately things that kind of push back or try to guide and lead in a certain direction um the preacher in in my set of characters is represented by the bow harp these kind of very small um, elaborately decorated with gold luster objects and kind of very pingy kind of uh, fluorescent pink cord, bungee cord on them. And again, I was thinking in, in most of the characters, there's this idea of like orality and speech and like a musical voicing. Um, what are the other ones? Um the Dreamer is a rose, a black rose. I was thinking a lot about Barrington Levy's song, Black Roses in My Garden, and the words from that talking about how to live, like how do we live? How do we live our own lives and how do we live our lives together? So in the song, he talks about, you know, you, you must tend to it, you must water it, you, you, can, you must do the best that you can do. So that really was the kind of the dreamer. And I was really thinking about that, this 
spring because I had I was a bit hopeless this winter winter turning into spring and so I really didn't set up my vegetable my like planting well and I think it's because I didn't I kind of didn't believe you know that we were gonna that the sun was gonna come out again and that we were gonna go through the new cycle and so I didn't really prepare and so my like my vegetable patch hasn't done very well this year and I was then soon after I started listening to that song and I was really curious about it like in terms of hope that you really yes in bigger ways for the world but also these small daily routines of like belief really have to be there you know believing that tomorrow is, might be better or well, we live in the small things, don't we? That's yeah. what we exist in. We don't ex- we, we there are big ideas, but on a daily basis, we exist in the small moments that we share. And and I love the fact that you are a gardener, obviously, and I, I assume you're a cook as well. I've always find a correlation between gardeners and cooks. You bring stuff from the earth into the kitchen, and that then relates to clay. You know, you are a multifaceted artist. People come to your practice will see sculpture predominantly, video, sound, performance, but your principal medium is clay. And this is something you've just talked about a lot there that is fundamental to your practice. And I'd love to know how clay came to find you. It feels like it found you and you then embraced it. And 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 before you answer that, I just something that really struck me that I read about you is that you said that clay as a medium is very analog. And there's something I love that that really resonated because I love that because it just feels historical. You know, clay, it goes back like millennia. People have always used it as vessels to eat out of. And it's there's nothing digital about clay. There's nothing digital about it. And I love the fact that it can be described as analogue. And that, to me, is so exciting, even though other people will be like, <laughs> oh, analogue, analogue. But me and Rob are very analogue. And I, love, I, love, I respond to that really, really well. I mean, I think that in this moment, there has been where our digital experiences are ever more vast and sprawling and you know it feels like there are increasing possibilities so many more people are working with clay and i think there is definitely a tension and a kind of repose to that um and so yeah i agree <laughs> i i definitely feel that too and it's an incredible technology. So it's also interesting to think about analog technologies and what they can bring and offer. Um, when did I really fall for it? I, I was working in sculpture, I don't know, since I was about 16 mm-hmm. and often working with plaster, resin, wood, anything I could get my hands on. And more than anything, I kind of, was drawn to working with clay initially without even firing it, just getting the kind of, you know, self-hardening kind of stuff. Air drying? Air Air drying drying clay. There you go. (laughs) Um, It was malleable. I I could have a thought and sort of be thinking and sculpting at the same time, you know, with my hands. And it felt very immediate and quite thrilling. And then it just got ramped up when I got to actually experience the full um, the full firing process and like movement through heat. So that was probably not until I think I, 2013 or 14, I got to do a residency in Italy and was able to work in a, a ceramics town for six weeks and 
Yeah. Ceramics Town? Ceramics Town, yeah. What? It sounds like a theme park. What, it what is- <laughs> basically is. It was, it's, it's kind of, I guess the project was born out of a wonderful curator called Geraldine um, who wanted to connect artists with this town because it was still in production, but a lot of the factories were now sort of like only half in use. A lot of maestros there uh, were, were sort of in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and there weren't that many younger ones coming up. Um, mostly they were kind of factories that were either making um, kind of, you know, toilets and kind of mm. pipes and these kind of things. Sanitary wear. Sanitary wear, yeah. exactly. Um, or other ones making souvenirs, things, you know, to go out throughout Italy and and be used as different kinds of souvenirs. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was, I guess it was a, it was an idea to sort of, make a connection intergenerationally and kind of revitalize some of the energy that had been present in this town. Um, and so I went there knowing no Italian and just got stuck in basically. That's so great. I read this really interesting article you said about how you're sort of torn by having to turn the kiln on because of the, you know, the cost of living crisis and the current state of the affairs and you're firing up this kiln with all this gas and that is, you know, your practice. So you have this sort of struggle sometimes with actually what you're doing to create the art. How how is that something you think about a lot? Because I've never really heard any other people sort of feel that guilt or talk about that guilt for what that sort oh, yeah, of is. Yeah, the gas guilt. Yeah, the gas guilt. Um, yeah, it's present. I mean, I kind of, I don't, I primarily use electric firing. Right. Um I would prefer to do atmospheric firing all the time, which is gas or wood, um, but it's not available to me. And also I I am conscious of wanting to, yeah, kind of like be aware of what is happening and yeah. that my desire to make art doesn't trump um, like the needs of our planet. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's always a complicated one with art because there is so much waste and deciding who and where gets to kind of produce things mm. and what is important and what is not is so much more of a bigger question, I think, than any one individual person's kind of mm. output. It's the kind of delirium you can get into about doing your recycling, even though you hear on the news that it's sent to all these other countries and it's not really recycled. And do I even need to or should I wash up the pot? even though that uses water, like you can just start really doing your own head in. Spiraling, yeah. So I think <laughs> there is, I have a consciousness about it and a desire to move towards being able to set up my own studio with a more kind of uh, sustainable electricity source. That would be great. And then to, mm. again, thinking about sustainability, if I was if I was somewhere where there was more kind of I don't know, trees being felled and a woodland or something like the idea of this, the, the sustainability would be have a different context and a different, yeah, you know, yeah. so it's, I'm thinking about it, but I'm also trying not to overthink it. If that makes sense. I think I'm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, exactly. You would just go down a rabbit hole and never get out. But I think I'm really drawn in your practice to the softness of your work even though it has this clay hardness 
you know, and 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 there's there's series where there's um, almost like armor, like these these turtle shells, these 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 kind of um, torsos that appear in the practice, but yet they're so soft, but you know they're they've been fired up and they're they're rock solid objects. That sort of that sort of feels like an un, un, limitlessness to the ability of clay. But do you find clay limited to a certain extent when trying to tell your you know, your stories? Or do you find it something that you continually reveals itself of what it can give you? I think it is continually revealing itself, but I think it also fails all the time. I'm, I'm often flipping in between whether those armors, which I love them being described as tortoise shells, because they feel very much like that. Yeah, that's what um, I still see, yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder if in some ways they fail in their softness because they're so hard. But I think in a way, a lot of the feelings I have about them are related to that, you know, this about this tension between this sort of like hard shells and the sort of like soft bodies mm. inside them. Yeah. I remember when I first saw the ceramic work and I my understanding of your work until that point was more like performance sound and works on paper, essentially, like kind of paintings and uh, kind of like drawings, I guess you would call them, but they were in ink or what have you. And um, I remember being really shocked, but I was able to recognise that it was you, even though it was a completely different language, because it was like suddenly this new development. And there's something really amazing about when you know a living artist, especially when they're younger, and they're going through this trajectory of like discovering themselves, you know, progressing, making new work. And I, the one thing that always struck me was that your ceramics didn't look like anybody else's. Like they immediately looked like you expressing yourself just in a different medium. But it was particularly the colour and the glazes and the kind of like the or, or the lack of glazes but um that there, there were there was this kind of like atmosphere that was created in the way that you were approaching the colors you you wanted to you know reach in um in ceramic was that was that how did how did that that come about like that decision making in terms of how they look thank you for that i feel like the pressure to have continuity is so stressful, especially mm. I think when you're younger and perhaps, I don't know, I definitely, when I was leaving, I, I went to, I did a BA in London and I afterwards was definitely looking around and saw people who would, you know, be painters and they'd just keep on painting or they'd make video art and they'd just keep on at it and could see that to some degree, it, it seemed to me that they had a, much easier way which I know is so not true because there is no easy way <laughs> but like it, in terms of people being able to understand a sort of like cohesive thing that was going on I felt like I had to hold my nerve a little bit to just keep meandering knowing that I don't know I thought I knew what I was doing mm. um but what was your actual question? It was kind Sorry. of about the colours. The, the, <laughs> oh, yeah, the, the colours. colours the because colours. at the time, there were lots of artists beginning to use ceramics as well. Like in, in the last 10 years, there's a lot of younger artists who have started doing it. Yeah. There was all kinds of people doing it. And often they were very glossy, very shiny, very bright colours, mm. um, things like that. And then I remember seeing yours and it was like you could feel the roughness of the The earthness. Day, the earthness, the earthness yeah, of it. But then you'd also have these beautiful like moments where you were painting, you know, in the in the white glaze or or cream or whatever colours it was. 
of techniques, wasn't it, that was running through them all? Mm. I mean, the, I, I, yeah, I mean, let's talk about the colour, but then the techniques that you use. Yeah, so I think that my primary seduction was the clay itself. And so I wasn't eager to lose that. I think in most of the sculptures I make, there is a sense that you can still see that it is clay. Mm. And so then the next step for me was to use other materials that could also be seen as such. So often working with oxides and things that would be occurring and forming in the earth side by side. So if that is something like copper oxide, which I use a lot, it's being formed in similar environments to the clay itself. So if you think about something like um, kaolin, so kind of like the more the whiter clays, that's that's uh, extracted from granite. You know, those that kind of granite rock formations would be quite close to or above the caves that you'd be mining for copper in. And so I'm, I guess I'm instinctively and then initially, because I didn't know that as much about all of this when I was first kind of touching clay and experimenting with it, but especially as I've deepened my knowledge, mm. I, I kind of, everything's kind of aligned. I'm like, oh, right. That's why I've been drawn to these different things and wanting them to be exposed. So often going for oxides that are, yeah, naturally occurring rather than stains, which are brighter and more sort of lurid often, has usually been what I've been most pulled towards. And using slips rather than glazes sometimes, yeah. slips just being coloured clay so that you still have the sense of the material that you're looking at. And, yeah, I think there wasn't so much of a trend towards that when I was first getting into it. It was much more about using clay as an object to mould ideas and, yeah, how would you describe it? I mean, you described I mean, it well, but I... Know, but it's, uh, it's earth, isn't it? It's from the earth. But you, you, listen to you then, you, you're, a, you're a bona fide clay nerd. You know, you've become, like, <laughs> obsessed with the geology of it. I love the fact that the way that the different... Yeah. It, it's really beautiful to hear that through the practice, your your love has deepened. You know, it's become so mature, your your understanding of the material that you're using. Like, it's not just, I need to tell this story, that will do. This is doing something deeper. Yeah, I'm... I only get obsessed. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> I've recently transferred it to playing tennis, but... And then just suddenly went from literally not knowing really who Djokovic was to going to wanting to go to Wimbledon, but it missed out going to the US Open, watching the whole of Wimbledon every single day, doing tennis like I like classes twice a week. It's just wow. I only Are know you good how now? To, I'm quite good. <laughs> <laughs> you do so yourself. But yeah. what's brilliant is I don't think I can make it into art, so I might actually have a hobby, which would be so wonderful. Um, so needed, right? So needed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just get obsessed. I don't. It's it's the thing. Um, and what I love about it also, as you probably both know, like the art world that we're we're all sort of like running in can be really brilliant and life-giving and also life zapping and I think it's been amazing for me to have by deepening this nerdiness 
just meeting so many different kinds of people who are who we cross paths on the axis of clay but they're sort of you know doing it in so many different ways so thinking working with geologists 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 yeah getting to speak with someone like um Catherine Yusof who wrote a billion black anthropocenes or none yeah just like getting to you know some of my close friends are potters who are sort of you know making kind of tableware and deep in that kind of studio pottery tradition and yeah it's like it's been really exciting so tableware is like domestic objects like plates and bowls yeah exactly you know when you were asking how, how we felt about it i I feel like there's a poetry in your work and I almost see you like a visual artist who's actually a poet. And I've always thought that in terms of the way that you approach sound, the way that you talk about, like even when you were talking about the lyrics earlier, you sort of spot things that are so poetic and, and you, you you highlight that, you know, even in other people's practices. I always thought that about you because you would always champion different musicians, different producers, different people. Um, and I know you, even in America, when you went to Brooklyn, you were part of this huge creative kind of scene of people but it, it was all quite poetic in a way yeah do you agree thanks. with that or not <laughs> yeah it speaks to me I mean I think poetry whether it's sort of writing it or kind of like noticing it around us is something that's important to me I think it's the it's the extra bit of magic that sort of links like your intentions maybe your research the different kind of threads of knowledge and gives it that extra bit of magic so it's can be felt as well as just sort of understood, you know. Yeah, you're you're bringing in a, a lot of ideas, and I think I've got things circled here. Where it's like strength, fear, protection. Thinking about your work, like I've done like a tarot reading, you know, <laughs> which, I know which I know you respond to. I like my circle that, but I, I've, I've read you describing um, having an interest in violences of the world as things that you you look to or understand or learn from to bring into the practice to, to tell your stories. And I'd love to just know about what the violences of the world are that, that have really kind of played into the practice for you and continue to, I guess. I think it's everything from the sort of like state-led violences that influence how we treat each other. So racism, homophobia, classism, all all of the things that feel, I guess, most heavy and dangerous. And then also the kind of like intimate violences, you know, the kind of what it's like to deal with a family. And I don't even mean in the most extreme cases, but just the kind of the cruelty sometimes we inflict on one another. Mm. Um, Yeah, how hard it really is to live in so many different ways, like emotionally and literally. And then these bursts, the spring, the kind of um, the love, like the pursuit of love and like how to how to live, how to live a good life, what that even looks like. Mm. Those kind of questions are important. And I think for me, art has potential to kind of just work through some of those questions which have kind of like endless answers. Um or sometimes very, very obvious and straightforward answers, but that are hard to enact. Um, yeah. 
think that's what I think about. Sorry, my cat is now just by, beside me trying to get my, involved. My, my cat's weirdly like totally involved in this episode. <laughs> um, won't stop cuddling and like touching the, the computer screen. Um, in, in this solitary pursuit of being an artist, something that I think has brought you solace, I'm speaking for you, um, <laughs> here is collaboration and, and coming together with other artists to kind of uh, almost take yourself out of that very solitary one-on-one um, -on -one Yeah, community building. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I know something that's been really important to you has been uh, mud belly and you know teaching clay and making it more accessible for black artists to create or not even artists just like black people um to have the space to learn and create through clay can you speak a bit about that amazing project that's been running now for a few years and has been incredibly successful and rewarding yeah so mud belly started as basically an instagram so that I could show my pottery as I was learning. So I had my first experiences of clay that very much led on from my work with sculpture. Then I decided I kind of, partly I thought it could be a hobby, which is why I was laughing about the tennis. Also, I wanted to just learn more about, about clay and I'd always been curious about throwing on the wheel. So I started taking classes and quickly became very addicted to it and was lucky enough to be in a studio where I was able to go in every day while while the course was on which was amazing and so I quickly got obsessed with it and really excited by it I had a wonderful teacher and was progressing and that was great but I noticed throughout the couple of years that I was studying I was almost entirely in studios with majority or only white people mm. and that most people seem to be have like I don't know a decent amount of excess income so that was very noticeable mm. and it just produced a certain culture that I was then learning in that had very sort of similar references that were really kind of leech style so kind of like Euro-Asian kind of fusion that began mm. from leech in the sort of 20s. Are we talking about Bernard Leach? Are we talking about Bernard like... Leach? yeah yes, so right. him he was <clears throat> A very sort of aristocratic uh, white Englishman and a potter who was born in Shanghai and returned to Japan often and made sort of connections, yeah, between these sort of like different pottery traditions to kind of give birth to what I guess is commonly known as studio pottery. And oh, wow. yeah, so those, so that's kind of where the studio pottery tradition is said to sort of begin. And it means that, I mean, you've got these incredible roots of knowledge from Japan, Korea, China, medieval kind of British pottery. But then, I mean, I hadn't learned anything about different pottery on the African continent. That's so like, fascinating. Yeah, and then when there were connections made, famously with an artist called Ladi Kwali in Nigeria. It was, again, very much in this sort of like British colonial tradition of mm. an, an artist coming from the UK um, and going over there and kind of like teaching it our way. And it's sort of with an air of collaboration, but not, but not quite. So, yeah, so I, in that kind of space, I sort of, I, I just wanted more. I wanted to be learning with black people. I wanted to be learning from black teachers. And I just started dreaming up. And I guess this is where the dreaming becomes important again. 
Oh my god, honey. Please. What's the cat? We may as well meet the cat. What's the cat's okay, name? Okay, his name's Honey. He's hi, Honey. He's huge. Look, he's now very you know what's cute. happening. He's like a tiger. Okay. That's why he's so loud. He's a big tiger. I mean, cat. he's huge. He's like dunk. <laughs> <Every time. laughs> um, I wanted to be in a different kind of space, and so I realised I needed to make it, and I wanted it to be free. I wanted to learn more. I wanted to sort of improve my teaching skills so yeah that's I got some funding and it started in sort of started in 2019 but the first classes were twen- end of 2020 I think and have you found it incredibly rewarding has it been something that's really enriched your own practice in itself but just what it's bringing to people it's been incredible it, it's been incredibly moving I found community others have found community with each other the way it works now is that I'm basically the sort of admin hub <laughs> and not doing a lot of teaching, mostly just covering and things like that. Um, this year, there have been, I think, six or seven different teachers running everything from 12-week courses, eight-week courses, throwing, experimental sculpture, hand-building, one-day courses, Um yeah, it's been really beautiful. So and there's far. a shop as well for people who want to go onto the Mudbilly website. There is a shop. Yeah, the shop it's is often all sold out. It is often sold out, <laughs> and um, I mean, so this is so part of the model is getting funding, um, and then the other part is me selling my pottery to kind of raise funds for so that the teachers can be paid, but the students can go for free, and there's a bit of access money and things like that. I need to make some pots and then the shop will be full again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I've, I've met a few artists that I think might have even been involved. Um, Freya Bramble-Carter and Chris Bramble, her dad. Yeah. Um, because Rona McKenzie curated a show in Margate with Chris's oh, work. Yeah, in, yeah, and yeah. I love yes. his sculptures so much. And we're meant to one day go to Kilburn to his studio and her studio and um, either interview them together or interview them separately, probably separately. But because um, I think Chris has such a... He, you know, he's probably 70 or something or 65. So he's got a whole, you know, it'd be an amazing episode. I adore him. And um, have you collaborated with either of them? So I really should put them into the origin story. I yeah, came When I came back to London, I moved into a, a collective studio in East London. Was having a good time, but still was feeling this need for community. And I was talking to Freya on Instagram and asked if I could come to their studio. And I just spent a day or two with them and just it was so warm it was such a beautiful experience we were talking so much about clay and our sort of like connection to it and that was one of the sparks that made me think oh right this is another way that the environment could feel both Mm. sort of yeah just how just their energy as artists and then also how they run this studio was huge inspiration and both of them have taught for Mudbelly Freya's teaching a wheel throwing course at the moment and they're just, they're really amazing people. I was really struck by both of their generosity and I guess being her father, he's obviously passed that on. But they Mm. have a real um, precision as well about the way they talk about ceramics and the way they make, you know, like really, really impressive people actually. I love them both. Freya's style in particular of teaching is so open and just like nothing I've ever really experienced before. And 
she'll often start with students who haven't touched clay before, haven't been on a wheel before. And rather than really getting them into the nitty gritty of like, okay, like laboring for like days on end, how to center and things like that, she just gets them stuck in and she's able to do it in this free flowing way, like so open hearted that really like just loosens people up because so often, especially with throwing on the wheel, people kind of end up like strangling the clay, like metaphorically and literally. And she sort of creates this environment where it just all feels very possible. And it's really amazing to see. And it's just very inspiring. It probably keeps you coming as well. Yeah, Because it doesn't freak you out or shut you off from the... Yeah, that's so interesting. Is drawing important to your practice as well? Do you you find ideas for, you know, the clay, for, for, for what you sort of carve into the clay or the way that you mold the clay and everything does that come from drawing it has done in the past and I think your question Robert earlier about the maybe link between the drawings and the sound and how everything's evolved and being able to sort of see see that still in the clay it's because of how much I used to draw and be thinking about different symbols and phrases and mm. and sort of like ideas through drawing. Now I feel like it's it comes in spurts, like sometimes at the beginning of working on a new project or often in the studio, quite strange looking drawings of me trying to articulate where the form is going to go next and how it might work. But yeah, I think I think it is important. And again, now it continues potentially sort of organically through the mark making so i'm often using a process called scraffito which is i was going to ask you about that yeah, what yeah. Is it? Cause that, that's associated with you a lot when you read up about you they say that that's a big technique for you i mean it's scraffito is just a way of drawing and it's drawing directly incising into the clay and you will often put a layer of slip on so you've got a contrast in color right. and incise into which can be sort of many different kinds of mark making. So it can be very scratchy or kind of, you know, you could use something quite smooth and, um, I don't know, cylindrical kind of like to scrape away and begin to draw across the surface, which is, I guess, something I work with a lot. I also really love your clay paintings in parenthesis, which are these... um... Well, they're flat, they're wall-based, aren't they, a lot of them, and they sort of hang on the, the wall like a painting would, but they're made from clay. They are so beautiful and so successful. When did that When did that sort of come into your practice, and is that an ongoing thing? And also, how do you support the weight of clay on a wall when it's hanging? <laughs> yeah, so many vital questions. Yeah. <laughs> Practical questions. Practical questions. <laughs> So in terms of supporting the weight of clay, very sturdy brackets and often working in sections. I Do they go on in the firing? Sorry to interrupt. The, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. The brackets are embedded in the clay at the point they enter the kiln? No. Right. The, the, the temperatures that I go up to, the steel would kind of, it wouldn't completely disintegrate, but it was sort of like partially begin to disintegrate so no they don't go in during that point they all have to be kind of installed afterwards to hold the works and I call them clay paintings I sort of 
as artists do. I stole and sort of, I don't know, is it stealing if you're kind of in reverence? Maybe yes, but um, <laughs> they're like in acknowledgement of an artist called Doyle Lane who mm. made incredible murals that he described as clay paintings. And then when I was trying to sort of figure out how to describe these works, um, he was my influence. And I've seen his weed pots. That's Doyle yes. Lane, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yes. and there's a new book out actually, which I have here which um, has just been released by David Kordansky Gallery. Oh, right. So he's got the... Is, is, is Doyle Lane still alive? Graph. He's not still alive. Right. So, so he's got sadly. the estate. Okay. Exactly. And, yeah, so he was kind of running his studio adjacent to the California modernist movement. And, again, he's another great influence for Mudbelly because he was often talking about how you sustain yourself as an artist and... You know, he would sell beads and other things like art, you know, like artists like Lucy Ree to sort of sustain the practice and then, you know, be available for the peaks and troughs of being flavour of the month in terms of, you know, getting commissions and bigger commissions for his artworks. Um, so I'm going backwards along your questions and then... No, oh, you're bringing up a point. Lucy, so Lucy Ree used to sell beads. I think I knew she made buttons and stuff, but that was... Just, that was to fund the practice a lot that, of it. That was to fund the studio. I mean, those were her bread and butter for a long oh, time. Wow. Um, which is also why she, I think historians have wanted to kind of really shine a light on that part of her life. But it was actually something that was, you know, it, it definitely gave her, I think, a lot of information in terms of glaze techniques and possibly other things but I think it was very much something that was done out of necessity and um, when she got a chance to focus more on other things she did she's also someone I look up to hugely in terms of working with electric kilns and the possibilities as electric is being posed as kind of one of the greener or more sustainable modes of power that we might have um it's she's someone who used the same electric kiln for most of her life and was producing results which like are sort of to die for so yeah one of the things that bonded russell and i was the additions shop at the camden art center Mm. in the early days of our friendship and one of the reasons camden was so important to both of us again was because of the analog uh ceramic studio Mm. that they have there and they often do residencies and have been very supportive to so many people that we know and have really helped i think keep um the tradition of ceramics and you know making with your hands in that way alive um even going as far back as like anthony gormley i think it was a place that he even studied when he he was a student or something. I didn't um, know that. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why he's still a really big patron of it since he's become oh, a superstar. Wow. Um, anyway, they've played a big role in your life too because you had an incredible solo show there. Did you ever make in there as well? Did you do a residency there? I did, yeah. Yeah. So this sort of links to actually, Russell, your... I've just remembered your, the other part of your question. Yeah, sorry. I always bombard. No, no, no. I love it. I love I've it. I love all it. all six of these questions Overly in enthusiastic. one go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... The first time I made clay paintings was for a commission by Fact Gallery. Fact, is it Fact Gallery? Fact, yeah. Mm-hmm. Fact Art Centre. In Liverpool. In Liverpool. Oh, Fact yeah. Liverpool. F-A-C-T. Yes. And it was for a brilliant group show created curated by Helen Starr. And it was actually all about technologies 
of different kinds, which was incredible. Um, and I was commissioned to make a 52 panel clay painting that had been in my imagination for a long time, but I hadn't had the sort of scope to realise. Why 52 weeks of the year or something cool? I don't even know if it was that exact at the time. It may have been. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's called Live and Active Gut Cultures, Subaltern Spirit Guides and the Detritus of Devotional Memorabilia. And so I think within that, it really links to like the spiritual realm, the geology, the kind of experience of clay, the experience of life, all in the title and the surface of the clay paintings, they're all black clay slabs and have their monochrome, have white slip and white glaze on them and lots of different kind of incisions of dates and codes and spiders and different things. Um, and then the next time I had the experience to really get into clay, so a lot of my experience with clay has sort of had these times where I didn't have access to studios. So then there was sort of like a few years of working a lot with performance or, you know, moving between mediums often out of out of necessity or opportunity. Um, and then in 2021, I got the opportunity to be at Camden Arts Centre and do their ceramics fellowship. And it was pretty life changing in terms of getting to spend almost a year in their ceramic studio and like I don't know just getting really stuck in with this facility that I had all to myself and knew absolutely what I wanted to do with it and it's an amazing studio is it that what they have there to offer and yeah it's great and it had the support of Sevac who was the technician there for many years um yeah it was it was a really incredible opportunity that. And then with that, you were promised an exhibition yes. from that. And does everyone who do the residency there, do they get promised exhibitions? They do now. But I think that only started possibly in the last seven years, seven or eight years that it's been that way. Um, I think it started off kind of as a smaller proposition and has grown into this kind of... Um, yeah, this this big. I think it's also solution. like Jenny Lomax's um, legacy in a way. Yeah, I, th I think there's an award that that gets given now, and it's linked to the Freelance Foundation. Who was Jenny well, Lomax, Rob? Really, people. Jenny yeah. Lomax is one of my favourite. We should interview Jenny Lomax. Oh my god, why have we not? Jenny Lomax is one of the reasons I got into art. I mean, because she lived. She sorry, I, I lived down the road from Camden Art Centre, and I would go in the early two thousands and see exhibitions there, and it was how I learned about Bastian Arda for the first time, or like Ava Hesse, and like all of these amazing shows in a really lovely it just felt like you were in your front room or something it was so sort of accessible and not not overwhelming as a gallery and jenny was somebody that i met really early on and she was the director for something like 30 years or something she was there for such a long time and is such a key person in so many artistic people's like, Careers, journeys yeah, yeah. on all sides like from curators to collectors to even just art enthusiasts you know as well as artists of course but yeah i think i think that that developed because she retired um, and now Martin Clark's obviously there. And I think maybe that was why that, that sort of got more um, support in a way, which is really cool. And your show there had a sound element. It had like a, a sound sculpture in it. I always remember that. And then 
that sort of, I feel, informed other work you went on to do in Cornwall. Because the last time I saw you, you made an awesome public sculpture um, at that place called Kestel Barton, which at the time I hadn't even heard of, but you introduced me to it and they do amazing stuff. Um, and you made this outdoor work that when I last saw you, you just um, had installed. Yeah, that was an incredible connection. So just speaking to the Camden thing, also Camden's always been somewhere that I've always felt at home and felt was one of the most exciting places to show work in London because it had that feeling of the space of an institution in terms of the vastness that it can bring, but also that feeling of being at home, both in their programming and the kind of like style of the space. And because I was just downstairs from the galleries, I kept, I got to be present in the space the whole way through. It was quite a unique experience mm. and kept popping up there and being in the space and thinking about it as I was working. But yeah, so I had a, the sound work at Camden was called Joy Comes With The Morning. And it was a mm. 35 minute kind of collage of horns and memories and poems that I created from tarot circles and lots of different stuff. Um, but the kind of formation of the sculpture that held the sound was these three ceramic bells, these red clay bells that were unglazed and beneath they were sort of hanging from the ceiling. And then underneath each one of them was a ceramic bowl that held water. The sound was projecting into the bowls and then they had a large sail black sailing rope that kind of wrapped around them and looped through the space. And that was really sort of almost wanting to kind of invite a spell or a ritual into the sound and into the way you experience the sound. Also in that sound was a lot of recordings from Cornwall and the time I'd spent there, there were sort of like some chopped sort of versions of cows mooing and like <laughs> inciting a bit of a riot to get their farmer to let them out the pen at sort of like 6am in the morning. Um, there were lots of sounds of water from Cornwall, different kind of like little streams in the sea. And so then when I got invited to Kessel Barton, I knew that I wanted to bring that sound with me. And they have a beautiful garden there. So I had, I basically showed the work in a walled kind of like hedge circle. Mm. And it was a bit of a deconstructed version. So it just sort of like had one bell that was on the floor that had the sound in and then on the other sort of rope, almost like a, what is the Libra sign? The, a lot of this, the scales. The scales, like yeah. almost like the scales kind of coming down over a steel T-beam that sort of protruded up from the centre of the grass. One side held the sound, the other side held the water and then it, sounded out through the fields wow. what was beautiful is like when I came down the morning after the opening I could hear cows in the distance and I could hear the sound on the recording and there was a sort of like were they having a chat yeah, there was definitely a chat there was a there was definitely a chat and an echo happening so I, I yeah. heard the story about these bells were actually a bit of a, a nightmare for a while trying to work out how to make them so that they stayed <laughs> yeah, on these too. ropes and everything and then you finally yeah. figured it out so I guess you were able to use that knowledge to then move into the the outside installation yeah I mean I think it's always uh maybe this is what I like about it there's what you want and then there's what the clay wants and I enjoy where those two things meet. I don't in always enjoy it, but like there is, I enjoy that feeling of liveness. 
and sort of yeah that I put my power onto it and then it kind of but it's has a, a living material yeah exactly it has memory I guess and I I also felt like the installation in in Cornwall was very much about um the seasons as well or or like even from day to day how something can change because i saw a few of your posts i think on instagram it was like a chilly morning and i saw it and then i creeped up on it the next day and it was doing this and like something about the environment and nature and how how that is its own thing as well like you can't control that so that almost becomes like a material in the work yeah and again that's i think i really enjoyed making that work outside and would love to do more of it and sort of have some of my biggest influences are artists who I guess could come under the land art moniker because I think mm. the different places you encounter work. I mean, I often think about art spaces as kind of like the library style of sort of experiencing work, you know, space where there's a expectation of quietness and reverence in a certain way. And I'm kind of up for that, but then also interested in the other ways you can experience it. Love that. Totally, yeah. Well, we're going to get into our final questions. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, um, thank you. If you could do an art heist, you could have any work of art in the world for yourself, what would it be and why? I have the work that I was thinking of, but I've also seen, I've just been in a sculpture show and seen loads of things that I want. <laughs> Let's hear <laughs> so the more. So I'm going to be it. really indecisive. I think I would probably have one of Beverly Buchanan's houses. Oh, the little huts. I think I would. I would. I would. I would. It would be I've a seen total her white pleasure. Columns. Didn't didn't Matthew have them at White Columns? Well, I believe her so. Work. Yeah, and she had a big retrospective at Brooklyn Museum. Yes. Yeah. Right. But I just where, got where dazzled by a Barbara Hepworth sculpture yesterday, so I was like, oh, that would where be was nice. That? Where did you see that? <laughs> um, it's actually in a group show that I'm in called Phantom Sculpture at the Mead Gallery in Warwick. So, yeah. And what does it look like? It's unexpected. It's two brass discs, very shiny gold-looking discs that sort of um, slide across one another. Um, you want that? But, I'll get you that. But... But Beverly first, of course. Beverly first. And <laughs> do you ever go and do like pilgrimages to like Barbara Hepworth's space or or Lucy Rye's or? I have been to Barbara Hepworth's. Um, stupidly, I haven't been to Lucy Rye Rees. Um, yeah, she nice. her studios, her whole studio is in the Victorian Albert, I believe. Um, is it? I think so. I think they I moved it. I have no is. idea. We should all go. Yeah, that's yeah, like I'd be really happy cool to. Day. No idea. <laughs> I didn't know that either. That's mad. Yeah. yeah. Maybe she left it to them or something. Because sometimes people leave their estate, don't exactly. they? Exactly. A, a bit like when we were at the Henry Moore, Russ, and people give <gasps> their, their like, you know, in, in Leeds to the library there. They give their archives and all their... Oh, it's like Francis Bacon's studio is now at, at uh, Hugh Lane Gallery in Dublin. In Ireland. Which I Ella Dabry's Hen- on the trustee oh, of, really? which is so cool. I, yeah. I love Henry Moore. Have you been to his studio? His studios in yes, uh, I, I have been just one. outside of not London. Recently. No, yeah, yeah, that was amazing. we went to the institute the other day, but there's not any Henry Moores there. Okay, and we yeah, and we we met his um, granddaughter as well. Oh, incredible! Um, yeah, which was really great. Um, before we get on to the last question, can we quickly talk about um, Boss? 
Yes. Because Russ was obviously the judge of the Turner Prize and we forgot to mention that. Thank and you. And I think it's quite important <laughs> to, to talk about it. I mean, one day maybe we should interview all, all eight of you together because that would be amazing, or nine of you together. Yeah. Um, but can you quickly just tell everyone what that, that is and then you were nominated for the Turner Prize? The Black Obsidian Sound System is a queer, black-led sound system based sort of in South East London. Um and it's been a sort of evolving collective that um, started from Evan Ifakoya's exhibition, Ritual Without Belief. And for, for that exhibition, they made this sound system that was always intended to be given, extended to their community um, to use and then evolved into the sound system. And it's a collective of us who are all interested in sound, some of us, musicians some sort of a DJs some work more with film and just to kind of want to be part of the collective um, we have a studio and we are getting in the swing of making it available for people to come and record or practice or you can rent out the rig so we have a, speakers and stuff yeah we, we, we actually have a sound system, system. Yeah. <laughs> a rig which is beautiful and we try and get it out as much as possible um yeah and it's just been a it's it's one of the first collectives that i've been part of especially since i've yeah in in recent years really and collective work is difficult and really interesting and i really enjoy being part of it what was it being nominated for the Turner Prize like and having the installation in Coventry and the Turner Prize was very hectic. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, think yeah. that's the best way of describing it. Wasn't it as it well, was yeah. it was hectic. And it's I think it's still landing, you know, because I think for all of the collectives, when you are working with a community but then kind of getting in yeah, I don't know. It's it's kind of it's complicated. I think the politics of it are slightly complicated, but mm. it was it was an interesting process for sure. And actually, you as a group uh, put out a collective statement at the time, mm. which I think very perfectly describes all of those complications and the way that there's often an expectation in the art world um, to have the pressure to sort of be seen to be speaking for everybody. Um, you know, within the black community per se, and uh, you can't because, you know, uh, be, you know, being a black artist or being a black creative is so nuanced and so there's so many different versions, you know, there isn't one thing. And I think there's some expectation within society that suddenly you're nominated for an award and then you're suddenly speaking for everybody. Really ambassador it's for kind everyone. of a ridiculous yeah, yeah. pressure to put on people. So I, 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 anyway, that's very succinctly. Yeah, I think just, just to speak to that, I think... Boss are just a group of people amongst so many decades of of sort of sound system history yeah. in Jamaica, in the UK. We're not the first queer sound system. We like we're not the first queer parties, you know, or black queer parties. Like we're amongst a kind of a whole kind of legacy and peer group of artists mm. and people who are into sound and people who like to dance and people who want to like, you know, push resistance. And that I guess trying to get that through when you win an award is very difficult. So, and I think all the, all the collectives 
that year was sort of trying to basically say we we are part of many and we don't speak as sort of like individuals and how to sort of wrangle with that. I think everyone sort of tried to do it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, very much so. What is your favourite colour? Pink. <laughs> <laughs> pink? It is pink. It's like, yeah, it sort of is pink, if I'm really actually honest. It's like the laces in the show. Yeah. Yeah. It appears occasionally in the world. Yeah. Really, though? Yeah. But it's your favourite. Like, didn't, it, didn't it appear early on? Yeah. Though? I feel like there was some meshes or something. I can't remember what they were. They were, they were, they were like sculptures you made early there, on. There's I definitely thought. red. I think pink appears yeah. very little in my actual work. Okay. Um, yeah. Another favourite colour would be green. But mm. if I'm... The things that make me go... <gasps> A pink? Often I love pink. <laughs> I was just wanting to be really honest with you. No, I love it. I could have said green and it would have been, you know, mm. yeah. more of a vibe. Well, if you want to see Phoebe Collins' James Pink, you get, you get to see it until the 28th of October. Arcadia, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's right. What is the... Um, well, let, well, let's just big up Arcadia Missa uh, yes. and uh, Rocha Farkas. Who and we have was, interviewed Rocha before with, as well. Yeah. And, and a, lot of, a, a lot of the artists that are on the roster there. It's just such a brilliant gallery and she's just so excellent. And what, what has it been like working alongside Rocha with the... Uh, Arcadia Mesa. It's incredible. It is incredible. And with, I guess I'm one of the old heads now because I've been elders, working. Yeah. yeah, one of the elders. Because I've been <laughs> working with her from 20, since 2014. So it'll be 10 years next year. And it's been from kind of like scrappy project space in the arches always doing interesting things to now kind of being doing the fairs and doing all the kind of like you know big gallery kind of stuff and I think that the fact that she keeps such strong ethics all the way along and is so devoted to the artist and to art and its potential all the way along mm. I think the fact that she's also a writer and deep thinker is really beautiful um, a number of people um, said to me about the press release, like, oh, who wrote it? And like, especially the first paragraph and, and Rosha wrote it and she wrote it from like sitting with me and just listening to me ramble on <laughs> about all the different threads of what I was thinking about for many, many years. And then more specifically for this show and that she's able to really just process that and and speak about it in a way that doesn't feel like jargon final question okay cool what is the best advice you've ever received when it's come to your practice your art oh in relation to my art i was actually going to tell you advice that was just given me to me in general but i think it's pertinent my granddad always told me that it's very important to be contrary and (laughs) i think Increasingly, what I get from that is just acknowledging all the sides to things always. And also, I don't know, other fab phrases like keep them guessing, you know, just sort of like it's so easy to get kind of stuck in what you think people want or what you think people are asking for or what you think you should be doing or, you know, 
creating this sort of image of something and I think mixing it up a bit and keeping it <laughs> keeping it going is That's lovely is fun that's really nice in relations relationship to a, a practice is keep them guessing so you don't become oh you're the artist that does that oh I'm used to that I know what that is now De- I mean definitely that and sort of knowing what taking risks means for you and often only you can really know what that means and it doesn't mean doing something that's like I don't know intentionally provocative or something like that I mean just like there are there are risks that you can take you know when you're going the easy way or the, or something that's a bit more unknown and I think sticking a bit closer with the risk is for me the only real way to go well, well said you're brilliant and also i feel like we could do another hour, hour i know i'm so sorry talking about no no <laughs> no, no, no but, so but talking about talking about other sides of your practice because it's that deep like all the film work or the performances another time another um time. <laughs> but i'm so glad we have finally had you as a guest because you know every time i've seen you i've been like when are we gonna do it <laughs> and the time was right Oh, um, we're thrilled. So, Thank you so, so much for yeah. giving you this, us this time. And for everybody listening, please go to Talk Art and we'll be posting images of what we spoke about today. Phoebe, do you have a, an Instagram for Mudbelly and your, your own practice and yourself? So my Instagram is Phoebe the Gorgon and Mudbelly's is Mudbelly Ceramics. Who, what is the Gorgon? Where does that come from? The Gorgon is one of the... That's an old handle. It is. I've had that for like, I know. like a, de- a decade or It was the name... But in the old... I think, I think it makes more sense now. I know. Really. I've grown in Does that make I've sense? grown into them. Yeah. Phoebe the Gorgon was in the first show I had at Arcadia Missa in 2014 yeah. and it was a drawing of a kind of monster with its tongue hanging out in speech. So, yeah, nothing's really changed. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Um, and you can go to phoebecollingsjames.com or arcadiumissa.com and we'll be linking to all of um, that on our platform. Talk up. Thank you for listening to. Thank you very much <laughs> for coming on. Thank you for everyone for listening and we'll speak to you all very soon. We'll be back very soon. Just Phoebe. Thank you. Thank Bye. you so much. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.